Um, okay, so now I'm going to start to to upload some episodes here and there that were some of my very first episodes I ever did on my show. And uh, this one was, uh, I think, like the 15th episode I ever did, which was with uh, Daniel Herbertson. And uh, I really wanted to talk to him because he was kind of the guy that uh, blew the lid on uh, Pride FC and the Japanese Mafia in terms of putting the story out of the public because he was the one who uh, Miro Mijatovic uh, went to to release his story. So Miro Mijatovic was a manager for guys like Mirko Krokop and Fedor Emelianenko. And uh, he was kidnapped or kind of, yeah, I'd say he was kidnapped. He was kind of told, told to go so he wouldn't... Uh, he didn't have a choice, but uh, he was uh, taken to a hotel in Kobe by the by Yakuza family that Pride had contract to pick him up, and uh, he was threatened. His life was threatened if he didn't sign away his rights to Fedor. So uh, this was a very big story in Japan at the time, and uh, one that ultimately led to the demise of Pride by taking them off of Fuji TV. So uh, this is an interview for you old school guys and some of the people that don't know about this. We'll probably find this pretty interesting because it's kind of along the lines of the MMA conspiracy hour that I used to do, that we've been doing with uh, Mike Davis and Miguel Adorati. This kind of right up that alley. So this is a Daniel Herbertson, and we talk about Pride, the Yakuza, uh, the tsunamis in Japan, which he went and uh, he traveled to those areas after they were hit with the uh, Insinanoi. So we talked about a lot of uh, really deep, interesting stuff on this episode. So check it out. Daniel Herbertson from Australia. Okay, so th- this is Todd Atkins, and I'm here with uh, Daniel Herbertson. And, uh, you know, for people that may not know you, uh, maybe you could kind of introduce yourself as far as the MMA world um, is concerned. Yeah, sure. Um, so these days I run a gym in Australia, Absolute MMA. I co-own and run the gym. Um, we've got uh, three locations in Australia, and we've also got a location in Thailand and Shanghai. Um, if you follow jujitsu at all, we've got uh, Craig Jones and uh, Lachlan Giles. So those are two guys that really made waves at the last ADCC. A couple of the top grapplers in the world. They train out of uh, absolute MMA. Um, and got a really good MMA team as well with uh, a few top-level Australian guys like uh, Roger Shippen, Jack Jenkins, Sam Hibbard. Um, big, big MMA team in Australia. But prior to that, I suppose what people would have perhaps... Uh, heard well, where people probably would have heard my name was um, I spent seven years living in Japan working as a journalist and photographer covering the mixed martial arts scene mainly uh, around Asia Pacific. Now, how did you transition into taking over that gym? Um, after the earthquake in 2011, um, the MMA scene really died. Um, or the MMA scene in Japan really died. I went from doing like, you know, two events a week kind of thing um, to, I don't think, I, I don't think there was an event for like a major event for like eight months, a year, something like that. It was a long time before they had a uh, big event after that. Um, sometime after the earthquake, uh, MMA fighting, which was the website that I was working for got bought out and I got made redundant during that just because hadn't been doing anything for a fair while because of the earthquake. Um, I did work freelance in Japan for a while, um, but there was uh, like following that. But then, um, you know, I just had some stuff going, coming on back in Australia and it felt like my time in Japan was coming to an end. So I moved back, looked for a job in the MMA industry in Australia. I tried to work within the, um, within the news industry here and journalism photography again, but, uh, there really wasn't the scene, all the work, uh, n- nothing here was going to be able to support that as a full-time endeavor. So I got a job doing marketing for a mixed martial arts gym. Um, at the time, it was a relatively small gym. Um, and then a couple of years later, I got offered to, off to buy in um, as a partner and uh, ended up uh, running the gym myself and expanding it and stuff. Now, you know, I had Jake Hewn on here. I know he had been training there some. I don't know if you want to yeah. even comment about what happened to him. But you um, know, I saw he got in some trouble. You know, I knew him from Hawaii. He played for University of Hawaii. I lived there. And he was Yeah, I think he did he interview on your show. 
He did, yeah. I mean, I yeah, know yeah, him. Yeah. And then he kind of fell off the face of the earth, and then all that news broke. I don't know how much yeah. you about that. But. Uh, yeah, I won't say much because his case still is pending. He got he, um during lockdown. Uh, so Jake was uh, in Australia with us. Uh, we in in my state, Victoria, we went through an eight month lockdown where to the point where uh, you couldn't leave your house uh, unless you were going out to buy essentials. You couldn't travel more than five kilometers and essentially all businesses were shut, including our gym. Um, so uh, Jake was with us during this time. Um, I won't go into the details as to what happened, um, but uh, other than to say that he, he was misled by a friend uh, and has now been, um, he was picked up by police and he's awaiting trial. So we're just waiting for the, for he, he hasn't had a chance to represent himself or anything yet. So um, his case hasn't been heard. Uh, he hasn't gone to trial or anything like that. Um, but we're hoping that uh, he can represent himself well and uh, honestly in, uh, in the trial and uh, hopefully that gets recognised and he gets released. But he's been, been held for a few months now just because there's been so many delays or um, the whole process is just slow to, due to the virus. It slowed everything right down. Yeah, it's unfortunate because he was starting to do pretty good in Horizon. Yeah, I'd say he's probably at the peak of his career, to be honest. Um, yeah, he, he, he was looking at, uh, looking at a title shot next. Um, and, you know, he, he was looking at some of the, trying to get some big names, you know, um, so yeah, it's been, it's really at the peak of his career. So let's kind of talk about this interview you do with the Miro Mijatovic, cause you yeah. know, I, I would say you were the first person to kind of get some of the stuff that a lot of people suspected with pride. You were the first person in like English speaking media to get some of the mm -hmm. stuff on the record. Maybe talk to me about how the interview came about. Um, uh, trying to remember the order of events. I, I, I believe it um, happened before um, K1 went bankrupt. Um, so I, th I think that there was some news about K1 um, selling all of its uh, licenses and properties to a, um, this is back when K1 was running the World Grand Prix and was a, uh, in its first, second incarnation under, under FEG. So it was, a, it, it was at its peak essentially. Um, and I got a tip from somebody that they had transferred uh, all of their licenses, trademarks, holdings, library and everything to a uh, real estate company. And it came only like a month after they, they received like a massive investment from a Chinese investment bank. So they've received this huge investment. I can't remember. I think it was like 31 million or something, um, which was huge at that time. Um, received this big investment and then like a month later declared bankruptcy. And I'd heard rumors that a few fighters hadn't been paid. So I started reporting this, um, this news uh, and it resulted in me getting some threats. Um, and I had to go to a couple meetings as a result of this. Um, but, you know, I heard about some fighters getting, not getting paid and um, was fairly determined to share the story for that reason, because I felt like those people deserve to be represented. And you started to hear um, some of the foreign uh, fighters mention it as well. Um, so I was kind of determined to follow it for that reason. Um, and, as I was reporting on that, Miro reached out to me. Um, so Miro Mijatovic used to be uh, most famously his manager of, of uh, Crocop for a long time and also manager of Fedor, um, both when they were in their prime in, in Pride uh, and K1. Um, but he reached out to me and um, asked me, he, he told me who he, who he was. I actually hadn't heard of him before. Um, but he told me who he was and asked if I'd be interested in an interview. And uh, of course I said, yes. Um, and I uh, got asked to, I shopped, I shopped the interview around and I um, filmed it for uh, a show that was on Spike TV and uh, wrote about it for a magazine, I think as well, Fighters Only magazine or something like that. 
Um, and uh, yeah, he 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 brought the story to me, and I just went to his office one day and filmed with him, and was um, kind of shocked to hear what he had to say. But he had evidence and everything to back it up. So it was yeah, it, it just kind of fell in my lap, to be honest. Now you you got some threats for reporting on what you were doing. How can you kind of elaborate on that or? Um, I had, uh, this is such a long time ago. I had a, uh, I had some fairly indirect threats, uh, or just kind of just other people within the industry told me to be careful. Um, uh, and I had, uh, the Kazuyoshi issue, the, um, the, uh, owner of K1 or the, the founder of K1 rather, he wasn't the owner because he had done some time for tax evasion, but uh, he wrote an article which felt like it was a, a veiled threat against me um, for reporting about this stuff. Uh, and yeah, I, I just had other people within the industry who kind of knew me and probably knew where I was ignorant and they gave me the heads up that I was getting into some trouble by writing about this stuff. Um, but you know, it, it didn't get too heated or anything. It was all indirect. Uh, but it was all like, I, I didn't probe too hard. It was all stuff that was on the public record. It's not like I was, uh, digging too deep or anything. It was kind of not, not really necessary. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting cause you know, I think most American MMA fans or even people that were in Japan, like myself, we can't read the Japanese media stuff for the most part, unless, you know, people are fluent yeah. in that. So it's hard to know kind of the ins, inside stuff. And uh, <clears throat> so so he wrote this article where he was kind of, was he, I mean, he didn't say you by name, but maybe was in implying that. No, he didn't say me by name, but he was specifically, he, he, he was referring to um, basically a, a, a boy that is playing a man's game not realizing the game that he play, that he's playing that was the the gist of the um analogy that he was trying to draw uh, but it, it's kind of like an analogy in a foreign language and then translated into english it doesn't always really make that much it doesn't make direct sense like that but i was it was brought to my attention by japanese media as well and they informed me what they believed it to mean now so when you go to talk to Miro, he's starting to put out a lot of stuff too. Were you kind of nervous about as you're filming the interview? No, I asked him about this, but the people that had, that, um, had, uh, had dealings with him in particular, they, uh, they'd pretty much been locked up and he didn't feel as though he had any, any more threat on him. Uh, so he'd, he, he'd started to speak openly about it. Did you want me to give a rundown basically of what he, he'd, he'd said? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think that'd be good for people that haven't heard it. Yeah, so I got invited into his uh, um, his offices and he, he showed, he, I think he had uh, one of Fedor's belts there and he had he had um, photos and everything of him with Fedor, Krokop, a lot of guys. Um, so he's a, a Croatian um lawyer uh and manager uh, also spends a lot of time in australia but he he, he lives in tokyo and he was manager to Krokop, fedor and uh that was his main too but i think there's some other guys as well during their prime in k1 and uh in and pride uh and he told me about an incident where well while he was managing Krokop. Um, he was, uh, as, while he was managing Fedor, he was uh, signed, he was Pride champion and he was, um, had a contract disagreement with with, uh, with Pride and Fedor, they had their New Year's Eve event coming up and Fedor signed to fight on Inoki Bombayer on New Year's Eve, which was a, um, on New Year's Eve in Japan, it's the biggest year in the, in in television, basically everyone watched TV in Japan. And for a few years there, the New Year's Eve MMA events were absolutely massive um, rating hits and extremely competitive. There was one or one or two years at least where there was like three big MMA events all, all on at the same time, all competing with each other. So it became like a um, very hot competition there. 
where Pride put on their own New Year's Eve event and their reigning heavyweight champion fought on in Okibambaya. Um, so Fedor had, had booked this fight and uh, Miro got kidnapped by the Yakuza who were in control of Pride at that time, or at least uh, Pride contracted a family to, to pick, pick him up. Um, uh, they kidnapped him and took him to a hotel room in Kobe. Miro's like six foot eight. He's a massive dude. Um, so it's kind of funny to picture him being kidnapped. But he said he was kidnapped by four people and took to a ho uh, hotel room in Kobe where they held a gunpoint to his head and told him to get Fedor to pull out of the fight, to cancel the fight. And I th think they also wanted him to sign over his contract to somebody else. Um, but he held him, they held him there for four days and eventually Miro says, well, I'm six foot eight. If you shoot me, what are you going to do with my body? Uh, and he just, he gets up and calls their bluff basically and walks out. Um, and they chased him for the next few years uh, and he was basically hiding from uh, the Yakuza, moving his family constantly. And uh, he... Uh, contacted Fedor ended up having the fight anyway. Um, but uh, Miro ended up contacting the um, Japanese version of the FBI, like the federal federal police NPA, and worked with them to um, expose the uh, Yakuza connections in Pride because uh, it was it was extremely obvious at that point and. Uh, he worked with the NPA to cut the first thing that they did was cut off um, their TV deals and all of their sponsorships, which ultimately bankrupted Pride. Uh, we'll, we'll put them into a position where they were bought out by the UFC um, because they couldn't get on TV anymore. So that, that was uh, Miro's work with the NPA that led to that. And he was chased down by them for quite a long time as a result of that. Uh, and one of the lawyers that, uh, that Miro worked with was kind of a fairly well-known um, uh, well known and outspoken opponent of Yakuza in all fields, like all areas, not just um, MMA. But he ended up, um, they ended up catching him and uh, he, uh, he was murdered in the Philippines. Uh, like he was one of Miro's partners in, in, in the work. But Miro, Miro managed to avoid them for these years and only in the last few years as he started to come out and actually talk about what happened. So <clears throat> it's believed that they were the ones behind the, the guys killing in the Philippines. Uh, this, uh, there's a, I can't recall his name. Um, but he, uh, is a journalist and a lawyer. Um, and he hung himself in a, a, a hotel room with a prostitute in the Philippines. Uh, that's a like that's a textbook way for Yakuza to commit murder um, because you get killed with a you, you commit suicide or they stage it to commit suicide and then you um, are there with a mistress. It stops the family asking questions or a prostitute. It stops the family asking questions. People don't probe too hard, um, but it, it's. It wasn't like it's not it wasn't suicide he'd just been murdered yeah yeah similar to marista and dse yes exactly yeah it's yeah it's just the standard method of operation yeah now you know when this interview comes out were you getting more uh did you get any more fallout similar to what I you did. got with i had i i had uh while it was airing i had someone tell me to stop like stop it stop it from airing um which you know i can't do anything but uh i ended up leaving japan the next day uh the day after it aired that was just a coincidence but i was kind of glad i did um that it was just i was just on my way out so yeah, the day it aired the day after it aired i left the country but yeah it wasn't because i was running away or anything it was just a coincidence so people reached out to you after it aired or as it was airing, I had someone contact me and said to, to stop it. Wow. So after, after it airs and everything, what was kind of the response? Did you get a lot of, uh, 
you know, emails or contact from people after that? Uh, I w- I probably not, not really. Cause I, I was moving on from the industry myself. Like I, I, I had basically left the role that I was in. I didn't really do much in journalism beyond that. I did, um, I did a show on like one FC was just getting started at that point. So I did a documentary on them in for the same TV show. But after that, I didn't really continue working in the field too much. Um, and, you know, I dropped off Twitter and all the other uh, ways in which people were communicating with me because it wasn't necessary for my work anymore. So I really didn't hear that much afterwards, to be honest. Now let's kind of talk about the, you know, I know you travel with Ensign to some of these areas that were hit by the tsunamis and stuff. Yeah. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this is uh, obviously after the earthquake. Um, I had come to know Ensign very well d- due to my issues with uh, K1, like uh, the Yakuza stuff after uh, I found that K1 was going bankrupt. Um, Ensign was one of the people that kind of helped me through that. Um, so I came to know him through there uh, after the earthquake um, and we, we'd hung out a bit afterwards as well. He's a, he's a really, really good guy. Um, but after the earthquake, he contacted me and said, uh, he, gave, he gave me a call and said, I'm going up north to check out Fukushima and um, I want to see what happened with the earthquake. Do you want to come? And I said, yeah, I said, I had no fights going on. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. And he says, I'm leaving in like 30 minutes. Um, you, you can get here and it's like it took me like 25 minutes to get to his house and I was like man I might need a little bit longer and he says you need to get here now I'm like all right and I just took, I, like just threw a couple clothes in a bag of my camera and uh, got there as quick as I could but yeah we were just off as soon as I as soon as I arrived we just drive straight up north um, he we were looking to at first we wanted to go into Fukushima um, and we drove towards, we wanted, he wanted to get in and see the power plants because at that time there was con- some conspiracies going on about um, the conditions of the power plants there. Um, uh, I, I think it was before that it was known that there was two that were in meltdown rather than one. One had like really bad external damage but wasn't in meltdown or something. I can't, re- I can't remember exactly, but it, there was some confusion or conspiracy over the conditions of the reactors and Ensign wanted to go check it out himself. So we drove up to, to Fukushima. Um, but as we're getting up there, we're like realizing how badly equipped we are to go into a nuclear reactor. Um, we didn't even have a Geiger counter. So we were like driving up there and we were stop- stopping to talk to locals in the area, asking them how they get in to the um into the zone around the reactor to see like how do you do it safely and they've all got geiger counters and they talk about how there's there's pockets of radiation that are just not really extreme um and obviously you can't feel anything or see anything so you need to carry geiger counters around it was just it's too dangerous and like really no point to do it until we had the geiger counters so we, we didn't end up going in there but um we went up north because uh, we continued to go further up north along the coast there where the tsunami had hit the worst just to see if there was some relief effort that we could do. Um, Anton had also heard um, stories of uh, some Chinese mafia uh, basically pillaging the villages that had been hit by the earthquake. None of that was ever confirmed, but he wanted to go up there to see if that was happening because he was going to do something about that. Um, and, uh, yeah, just kind of get a better picture for what happened, um, ourselves. So we spent, I can't remember, maybe two, two weeks, I think, um, basically driving through, uh, every city that we, like the, the worst cities that we could find would go to cities and ask, ask around it. Have you heard how bad it is? Like, where's the worst place around here and whatnot? Um, so because this is fairly early, there wasn't much reporting on it yet. Um, so we drove around all of these cities that were um, like just, just completely devastated. Uh, and we're just right about what we were doing. I was writing an article day and, and Ensign was on Twitter or, you know, whatever social media he was using. And 
we would uh, he opened up a PayPal account and people we were just documenting what we were experiencing, what we were seeing. Um, and people were donating money so we could go and buy um, supplies and clothing and whatnot for people who'd survived but had their, lost their homes. Uh, and we just delivered it around to the relief centres, kind of giving people a direct way to donate because um, there hadn't been, none of the charities had come in yet. Um, there was some frustration about uh, the Red Cross receiving an enormous amount of donations, but none of the none of the relief had actually gone out. And it was uh, kind of frustrating to say that nothing was being done. So we went up there to try and help in that regard. Um, so yeah, pretty much every day we were driving to a new city uh, and finding the relief centres. Um, Anson was talking to guys that he knew about um, if anyone was kind of misbehaving in the area as in any of the criminals. And we would uh, just kind of go to all the relief centres and deliver um, stuff that Anson and other people um, donated. Now, you know, how did you, I mean, what, looking back on it, you know, mm -hmm. being there in that moment, how did that affect you? Um, uh, I, after, like, it felt important. It felt, it, it was, it was, it was kind of big, actually. It felt important. It felt real, um, especially coming from doing, uh, like, sport journalism this was something real and we were doing something meaningful in, in helping people. Um, like we raised quite a bit of money and managed to donate quite a lot. PayPal ended up um, uh, making us uh, give back all the money or rather they just took it out of the account because it's not, we weren't a registered charity. So like, I don't know, it could, I understand why they had to do it, but we it meant that like we had to pay for everything out of pocket. It was like 60, 60 or 70 grand or something that we donated out of pocket, which was supposed to be donations from other people. Um, after that, I was like considering going and doing war photography or like fairly in more intense kinds of journalism or more, you know, uh, things that aren't revolving around sport. Um, I was quite interested in that for a while, but uh, fell into a good job and a good life back in Australia. So I never did it, but it took a while for me to, because after that I started hanging out with Ensign quite a lot. Like we were hanging out pretty much every day ever since that trip. Uh, not every day, but very, very frequently ever since that trip. Um, and it took a while and when I came back to Australia to really recognize what, what kind of life I'd kind of slipped into. And it took a while to, uh, integrate that, I suppose, but it was, uh, it was, it was really meaningful and it was not boring and it took a while to adjust to life without that kind of stuff happening, you know? Yeah. And when it aired, I, I know you put it out on YouTube and I think like vice had something on it as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, there's a few outlets that I did it for. I wrote daily articles, uh, and did videos and stuff too. Uh, again, it got picked up a couple. And then I think there was a couple other things subsequent to that that we did too. Um, yeah, I mean, it was big. It was, I mean, Ensign still does trips to this day. Like, I don't know how many times he's been up, but kind of goes up a couple of times a year just to check on the people that are rebuilding and everything. Now, you know, you go back to Australia and uh, what was it like the, at first when you, you left Japan? Because you know, you had such a big involvement with Japan with some, mm -hmm. you know, these things. How was it to adjust? Because it was weird for me, you know, to come back to the U.S. What was it like for you to come back to Australia? Yeah. How long did you live in Japan? Well, I, I only lived there three years, but, you know, it's yeah. a place I really enjoyed living. And, yeah, yeah. it was difficult to come back, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, it took me a while. It took me a while. It's just such a different pace of life. Um, I mean, the culture is just completely different. And I was there for a long time. I really adjusted to the culture. Like, it, it changes. It, like, living in such a different culture changes your perspectives on life. It changes what you 
believe to be important. It changes all kinds of things about your character. Um, it, it, and, you know, kind of lived there fairly deeply and, and for quite a while. Coming back was, it, it took a long time, I suppose. Um, the pace of life is very different. I would, you know, I would be out doing something six days a week, easy in Japan. There's just so much to do. I was living in Shinjuku, like Shinjuku area. Um, and, you know, eating out nearly every meal, such a big and close social life. Um, and obviously around like an amazing fight scene. It was that, it, and by the end of it, I was kind of flying around all over Asia Pacific covering fights and stuff too. It was quite, it was incredible. Um, coming back to Australia, which is basically didn't really have much of an MMA scene. The cage was not even legal in Victoria, like my state. When we when I came back to Australia, it took a couple of years for the cage to be legal. So, um, I mean, it's come a long way since then. But when I came back, there was not much going on. So, for a while there, I wasn't really sure what what direction I was going to go. But I'm glad that I fell into uh, another gym like a, an MMA gym here that allowed me to um, kind of find my footing and adjust to a different pace of life and uh, different style of life. Now let's talk about the fight scene in Japan. Cause you know, a lot of people weren't there in the middle of it. Maybe talk about it in your own impressions. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the reason I moved to Japan was to, to, I just loved Japanese MMA or martial arts in general. Um, I finished my degree in a university degree, uh, already had landed a, a job and just had this, um, not, not like a, not like a nervous breakdown or, or anything kind of clinical like that, but it was more, I just had this crisis where I realized I don't really like what I'm doing. I don't like the trajectory of my life. I don't want it like, I don't like what I studied and I don't really want to work in this avenue. Um, and I just had this massive passion for MMA. So I'm just went, moved to Japan, uh, just to be amongst it for a while. And, um, I wanted to get as close as I could get to the scene. So, I mean, I start, I was training, I started training over, um, at a shooto gym with, uh, uh, Hatsuyoki fought in the UFC. It was a good Japanese fighter. Um, was training with him and, um, to taking photos of him in the gym and managed to get recognized just from posting them on forums. And I get invited to work for Sherdog was the first gig that I got. Um, and that opened a door to me to, to every, every event in Japan. Um, I had, you know, Western media credentials. So I just contacted literally every event that was, all over the country. So I was traveling every weekend to, to sometimes three events a week, most of the time, um, all these different kinds of scenes as well. Uh, so you have things like Pancras and Shooter, Shooter, which predate UFC, um, Shooter started in, I think like 1987, but it's, it's full mixed martial arts. It started like so much before the UFC Pancras started a couple years earlier as well. Um, it's, it, there's all kinds of different shows. Some have uh, a lot of pro wrestling influence. Um, some uh, take kind of, you know, that they, they lean into the the under underworld stuff and have uh, more gritty cage fights. Or um, you can, there were some events where you could see uh, yakuza guys fighting each other. Um, there was everything that you could imagine. And there, there was one that Shuto itself runs essentially like a sport. You have grades, like uh, you, you have different classes and they have national, internet, like state level, prefecture level, city level, national level championships and everything. And it's run like a sport, like purely like a sport. So, so different than MMA is promoted right now. Um, so the MMA scene was massive and there was so much variety in there uh and so much fun in there as well like it uh it, it's entertainment there too uh they especially in in events like pride and k1 they make the guys like superheroes you know the writer of uh the pride advertising and media and stuff was a, was a comic book writer and the fighters over there were superheroes and it kind of just 
had a, had a different atmosphere to the way that that uh, MMA is marketed today and or marketed in the West in general. Um, and it's just an incredible scene. And I was fortunate enough to get a gig doing photography, which got me ringside or cage side at, at, at pretty much everything eventually. Now, maybe talk about the first time you went to a pride event or first time you went to Karakwin Hall. I always like to get people's impression of these places because it was Karakwin Hall is a legendary place. A lot of people yeah. never had a chance to go there or Tokyo Dome. Just kind of. Karakwin Hall is amazing. That's probably my favorite venue just because of the history. Every pro wrestling Japan, um, event in Japan, no matter how big or small, has run a show at Karakwin Hall. It's got pro wrestling, kickboxing, MMA. Um, so I don't know what it's like these days, but I mean, back in when I was there, they were running at least two shows a day. They'd have a day show and an evening show. Um, you go down the stairs. It's up on like the seventh or 11th floor or something like that. You go down the stairs uh, to exit the hall and there's graffiti all, all, which is really uncommon, graffiti all down the hall, just like Sharpie graffiti. Um, with people drawing like images of their favorite wrestlers and fighters, all these fighters have signed the walls and everything. It's just, just awesome. Um, and, uh, really tight at like good atmosphere in the venue too. It's kind of, it's so different. It's just purpose built for, for fighting, you know? Um, there's not, there's not many venues that are purpose built for, for fighting, but you've, you've got quite a few of them in, in Japan. The Budokan is another one. It's main, mainly for, for uh, other martial arts, but they run, run a lot of events there too. It's just a stadium built for fighting, and it feels like that. Like the way that, that it kind of closes in around the ring, it's just perfect, you know, all the stadium seating going up at the perfect angle. Um, the People talk about the, um, the how quiet the Japanese crowds are, and... The, and that's true, but they're, um, they're also loud sometimes too. And the difference between when they're quiet and when they're loud makes it an awesome atmosphere because it just comes in waves. Like if nothing's happening, people, people are quiet. And if something great happens, you just feel this wave of energy come through the whole place. It's awesome. It's different than if people were just yelling or uh, screaming through the whole thing, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was so many times where like, it was absolute dream job, absolute dream job. You just get, get ringside down to a show, like a, a world Grand Prix, like K1 world Grand Prix final or a, or a pride event. And, uh, so many times I just got down there kind of find my place at ringside and just, it just blows you away. The, the amount of production and stuff that they put into these shows. And it's just so exciting to see what every single one was like, because every show was different. Every show has, has different themes. Every show has different kind of music and energy and everything like that. Especially, I cover a lot of UFC events as well, but especially like every UFC event is the same. Everyone's the same. Um, the, like the fights are great, the, high, the highest level it's ever been, but every event is the same. But it's never like that with uh, the Japanese MMA events. It's always, everything is always different. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up. You you feel like the UFC events, it's kind of the experience is the same each time. Yeah. It's like a Vegas show where you go to see like a Vegas performer. They do the same show every day. Kind of thing. But it literally is. Um, it's still in like the photographer as well. She pointed it out to me. I, 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 I'd never really been to that many UFCs because I didn't come to Asia Pacific very often at that point. Um, the first one I was with, Esther at the event and I commented how, how awesome it was. And she's like, yeah, but it's the same every single time. Like it's the same highlight video, the same music, the same, like the same playlist that they play before the show. I don't know what's like these days. I might've changed it, but the whole thing was just literally the same show. Um, you know, those black, black on white talking head, um, to start the show. Like it's just very formulaic when like some of the one of the pride Grand Prix's, the um the poster for the show was uh sperm and it was it was a well grand prix like a well grand prix with open weight grand prix where they're finding the you know best open weight fighter in the world 
and it was the sp the the poster was sperm rushing towards the egg, and the, it had the 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 text for the poster was one in six billion, as in representing the population of Earth, and it was the open weight Grand Prix. It was just beautiful, so good, so good, and the, the mark like the, the way that they produced the, the actual live shows as well. You just never know what you're going to get. Like you'd never expect sperm to be on a poster in the UFC. But uh, it was something, something awesome about it. Uh, loved it. Loved it. So let's kind of talk about because I asked you if you had seen the Jake Paul Ben Askren fight. How much of that event yeah. did you watch last night? Uh, nothing. I watched. I watched about uh, fifteen seconds of the knockout. Um, on a highlight posted on social media somewhere, you know, I mean, so I didn't, I'm not, I, I think it was the first round anyway. Um, I didn't think the fight went very long, but that's, uh, that was terrible. That was absolutely terrible. I mean, people are, are ripping the event, you know, cause it had a lot of performers maybe like four or five musical performances and yeah. But I see yeah. a lot of ex fighters saying, I want to do that. They see the paydays were really big. You know, I think Askren every single like, fighter made she, at least what did he get, five hundred thousand dollars or something. Yeah, I think Askren got, uh, yeah, I think around that much. But even even like the lowest was like a hundred grand. You know, so no, people want to see the, they want to see them lose. They want they want they want to see them lose, and they'll be willing to pay to see them lose. I guess, like, I don't know. I don't like it. I wouldn't. I, I would struggle to spend my own money on it. <laughs> unless you get unless Jake Paul gets knocked out, I'm not going to be happy. And Ben Askren's not going to do that. But I see a lot of ex fighters like Jeff Curran and uh, Chris Lieben, all these guys saying they want in on some of these fights. If you know whether it's Jake Paul or somebody else. Oh, I mean, if they can, oh, you see a lot of uh, older or you know guys when they're done with their MMA career or UFC career, starting to do things like bare knuckle boxing and. Um, I prefer that they go down the route of fighting YouTubers than get into bare knuckle boxing too much. Um, you know, if they're able to make money, if they're able to entertain, some of these fighters are good entertainers too, you know. They don't necessarily need to be competing in their prime all the time. We can still appreciate them as entertainers. Um, if they can do that in a way that doesn't result in them risking their brains or their bodies too much, then I'm all for it. Yeah, it kind of has some of the the Pride Circus feel, you know, having the YouTuber versus yeah. Ben I Ask mean, they that's another aspect of things that 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 Japan have really explored, and that you see a lot of older fighters go on talk shows over there and competition shows and stuff, doing things like uh, wrestling and sumo. There was one sumo event that they did um, with MMA fighters. Uh, and K1 fighters. I think Semi Schultz won it from memory. But I think Fedor was in it. There's all these MMA fighters in it. And they did a massive sumo competition. Pretty pretty sure Semi Schultz won. It was a long time ago. Uh, and yeah, they get paid. They should get paid. I mean, they're good entertainers, you know. I like to see that kind of stuff. Now let's talk about your competitors at your gym. Because, I mean, Craig Jones and... Lachlan Giles, some of these guys are really exploding in the grappling world. Maybe talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we have, you kind of need those guys. Like you, you need, uh, once you've got one guy at that level, like at that elite level, it rises the tide a lot. Um, so the once we started to have some of our competitors really get some, good good results like we'd always had we'd, we'd won quite a few world had quite a few world champions um and we'd had success at world championships as a team as well i think we won a bronze one year for no gay uh, maybe it was just in the female division though not the not the male or open um or the combined rather but you know we, we'd started to have a, a quite a lot of success um as a team um, and then a few years back, uh, we opened up another gym and partnered with Lachlan, um, Lachlan Giles, 
who was studying his PhD as uh, he's a physiotherapist. Um, studying for his, his uh, PhD and also teaching for us. So we partnered with him to open up a new location of our gym. Um, and when he partnered up with us and when he finished his studies, he was able to focus full-time on his jiu-jitsu. Uh, he was always like a good competitor, but uh, he'd never got great results. But once he was able to focus on jiu-jitsu, his, his, his level just, just exploded. And he went from a good local competitor to, um, to, you know, what he did at ADCC a few years later. Uh, so he, he really brings a very um, logical and cerebral approach to jiu-jitsu that, that people find refreshing, I think. Um, and with guys like Craig Jones training here as well, Kit Dale was also here at that time. Um, training with those guys training together, their level just went just went through the roof very very quickly and uh, attracted a lot of other guys as well who contributed to the level raising in the gym. And uh, maybe tell me about because I know MMA obviously is getting more popular there with the you know Robert Whitaker, Israel yeah, Adesanya yeah. is popular in Australia. And how about the grappling? MMA is, it, is it increasing is, that overall? Melbourne, um, at one point, I don't know what it's like now. Melbourne at one point or Victoria had the, uh, number one expenditure per capita in the world for mixed martial arts, uh, for UFC. Um, so more people per capita in Melbourne or Victoria were uh, purchasing pay-per-views than anywhere else in the world. So mixed martial arts is quite popular here. It's not, not really mainstream. Like you don't see, you don't see Robert Whitaker or, or Volkanovsky or anybody on TV. Um, but it's extremely popular. You see it in all the, all the bars and pubs and stuff. And it's been popular for a long time. Um, but uh, when I first came back to Australia, the cage wasn't legal here. It took a few years. I, like, oh, it was 2000 and I don't remember. Um, after a couple of years, the cage became legal and then the UFC came to town and that saw uh, MMA go to another level as well. So um, we had like Holly Holmes versus um, Ronda Rousey here, which was a massive fight. Um, and a couple other UFC events have been big here as well. So it's, it's big in Melbourne, but um, this is one of the most busy sporting countries cities in the world like uh, we have formula one here we have uh like australian open tennis here which is on the uh world tour we have quite a lot of big sport here so it's pretty competitive but mma is still big here and so what do you see the future as far as like what you're doing with your gyms and stuff um i will we're probably going to continue to open up additional locations once kind of covid stuff settles down um and uh you know we'll, we'll just keep expanding in different ways as well um i'm probably going to be getting into promoting myself this year um uh opening up additional gyms that kind of thing uh but you know we, we had big we had plans but covid's kind of put a pause on that for the moment at least uh it, it's more about recovery at the moment but uh yeah, we've still got some interesting things coming up. Well, again, I want to thank you for taking time to do this. And I was wondering, uh, anyone who's listening to this, there's something you want to leave the interview on or something you want to let people know about? Um, I will say that I went to, like, I had the, it's not like uh, going to Japan was handed to me. It was just a choice that I made. Um I chose to Japan, go to Japan and, and follow like this really interesting career or this, this something that felt um, important and interesting to me just because I chose to do it. I was, you know, I I'd already finished a degree. I'd had a job, but I was really unhappy and I had something that made me happy and I just chose to go and do it. And it's not like there's this barrier between you, uh, to, between me and actually taking the leap to move to Japan or anything is I'm sure that 
you experience. It's just a matter of doing it. And uh, I'd encourage anybody that if they do have an interest to, to go to somewhere like Japan or follow a um, passion that uh, they perceive to be too difficult or too far away or anything like that, like you can just you can just do it a lot of the time. Uh, a lot of the difficulties in your head and I would encourage anybody who has an interest in moving to Japan but it feels impossible to just just figure it out and do it because it, it is certainly possible and uh, it was the best experience of my life. Actually before we go you know Ryzen obviously came up now so what, what do you think looking back on you know your departure from Japan seeing mm -hmm. pride fall apart it was heartbreaking for me to see that stuff too I love pride and K1 so now that you're mm. seeing Ryzen kind of pop up again, what are your feelings on that? Because um, I doubt you're like Sakaki Barr's favorite person on earth, probably, right? Uh, does uh, the, Do you know if he... Uh, I don't know. I mean, you've probably got no idea who I am, to be honest. Oh. Uh, uh, look, I, 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 I like it. I love watching the show. I, I think like guys like Tenshin especially, I love watching him fight um it's got some say it's got some some great stuff going on and i'd like to see the the scene as a whole continue to to find a place there a balanced place um where because the gyms aren't big in japan like they don't have a lot of money in them there's not much of a the gyms in australia for example are just so completely just on another level compared to the, the gyms in japan i'd like to see the the whole industry at all levels kind of grow and succeed um because they're not um while they run some of the best shows in the world their training facilities and the, the the lives of the fighters aren't necessarily on the level that they could perhaps deserve to be so i'd like to see uh it trickle down a bit you know yeah for sure so again dan i, I want to thank you for doing this and uh Maybe when you get back to promoting, we can catch up on something. Sure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks, Tom. Bye. All right. So normally I would tell you where you could follow our guest on the show, but Daniel isn't on uh, social media. He's the kind of guy uh, that I had to track down to do this interview. And, uh, but, you know, he, he has some interesting stories out there if you look him up on the internet and whatnot, but uh, you can't really uh, reach out to him on social media. And as always, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, the underscore Todd underscore Atkins underscore show. And uh, also please subscribe to my YouTube channel and TikTok channel, which are Todd Atkins show, both of them. And as always, appreciate your support and stay tuned for more stuff.